Hi, I'm Jonathan Groves, and welcome to the Cranmer Fellows Podcast. This is a podcast that explores pastoral ministry from an Anglican perspective. If you are a pastor, ministry leader, or an aspiring minister, I, along with my co-host, Matt Kennedy, pray that this podcast will help equip and encourage you in your ministry to Christ Church. This podcast is an arm of the pastoral training program, the Cranmer Fellowship, at Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York. Church of the Good Shepherd is a congregation committed to following the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing the good news of His life, death, and resurrection through the study, exposition, proclamation, and application of His Word, the Scriptures. If you would like more information about the Cranmer Fellowship, Church of the Good Shepherd, or if you want to reach out to us about this podcast, please do so by emailing us at cranmerfellowship.com at gmail.com. Now, let's get to today's episode. Welcome once again to the Cranmer Fellows Podcast. Today, Matt and I are honored to be joined uh, by the Bishop uh, William Love. Bishop Love was received into the Anglican Church of North America and called to serve as assisting bishop of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word in 2021. Prior to coming into the ACNA, Bishop Bill served as a priest in the Episcopal Church for 14 years before being elected and serving as the ninth bishop of Albany from 2007 to 2021. Bishop Bill is married to Karen. They have two children, five grandchildren, and another grandchild, do this month, I learned. So congratulations. That's great. Uh, Bishop, thank you for being on the podcast thank you. with us today. Thank so much, Jonathan. It's a blessing to be with you and Matt. Uh, also, Bishop Love is a, a native of Texas, which means we have three Texans here. So obviously, this is going to be a good conversation. Just, I have a distal at home that says, uh, rumor has it, God is a Texan. So I have right here um, a Lord of the Rings map of Texas. It's a it's a map a map of Texas in the Lord of the Rings style. So awesome. <laughs> I think that kind of sums up the things I love most right there. So well, uh, I'm sure those who are listening who are not familiar with your story, Bishop, uh, will be curious about your move from the Episcopal Church to the ACNA. And I'd like to give you uh time to recount that, even though I'm I'm sure there's, you know, there's probably a lot of pain in, involved there. However, I'd like to first uh, hear about how you entered into uh, pastoral ministry. This podcast is primarily focused on pastoral ministry. It's for pastors uh, or aspiring pastors. So can you just start by walking us through your journey into ministry? When and how uh, did you sense God calling you into the pastorate? And then could you compare that to your call into the office of bishop. Uh, thank you. Uh, I was a cradle Episcopalian, born and raised in the Episcopal Church. Uh, well, my dad was stationed overseas when I was first born, and, and we traveled around a bit. Most of my upbringing was in Northeast Texas. St. Dunstan's Mineola, Texas was my home parish, and uh, it was there that I really started growing in my faith and and really having a, a strong love and desire for serving our Lord and serving his church, first as an acolyte and and then uh, 
going going from there. Uh, by the time I was a senior in college, I was pretty convinced that the Lord was calling me to be a priest in the church. But by that time, I was already committed to going into the Air Force myself through Air Force ROTC. And that gave me a chance to further test that sense of call. And, and uh, the one thing that happened over those next four to six years was it didn't go away. It only got stronger. And, and uh, so it was in Plattsburgh, New York, that my wife, Karen, and I met while we were both stationed uh, there at the air base. And it's soon, in, in fact, on our very first date, I, as we were asking each other questions and everything, I, I said, I, you need to know that, that I, I believe that the Lord is calling me to be a priest in his church. And uh, she said, oh, wonderful. She is a devout Roman Catholic at the time. And and then I asked her the question, well, what, what are you hoping to do with your life? And, and she said, well, I, I hope to be a general someday. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure how this is going to work because I don't see how those two callings could possibly come together and, and yet God, in, in his miraculous way, was able to do just that, to, to be able to work what, from a human standpoint, didn't make a lot of sense, to make it work. And, and, uh, and so uh, after six years serving in the Air Force, I believe that, that was the time for me to actively begin the process to uh, go to seminary. And uh, I was trying to figure all of that out. Karen had a longer commitment to the Air Force than I did. Uh, she had already said she was planning to make it a career. And and uh, so we were trying to figure out how we could find a seminary close to a base that she could serve at and and went through all these hoops and everything and, and ultimately uh, discovered that we were not in control of that sense of call that the Lord was, that uh, I met with the Commission on Ministry in Albany and uh, received the Dear Captain Love letter, which said, we're sorry, but we cannot recommend you to the bishop for ordination. And uh, I was not expecting that at all, because I was convinced that the Lord had been calling me to this ministry. I'd been fighting it for well over 10 years and, and thought that now is the time. And, and so I was doing all these things to try to make it happen, only to, to receive that letter. And, and uh, it, I, it was a blow because I wasn't expecting it. But again, the, the thing that happened was that sense of call didn't disappear. It only got stronger. And I asked to meet with one of the members of the uh, Commission on Ministry to find out what their concerns were. And, and we talked. And at the end of that meeting, he said, well, it may be that you do, in fact, have a call to the ordained ministry. And, and uh, so he put me in touch with Bishop All who was the Bishop of Albany at that time. And, and uh, at the end of that meeting, he said, well, it looks as though you may in fact have a call to the ordination ministry, but I want you to go through the, the new uh, ordination process. They had revised it somewhat and uh, it ended up being a, a two year long process, but, but it was a real blessing because it gave me a chance to actually work on some of the concerns that they had, it gave them a chance to truly get to know me for who I was. And and uh, to make a long story short, I, I was approved. But but going back for a moment, the, the one thing that, one of the lessons that I learned and by receiving that first rejection letter was having to truly turn it over to God. Because up to that point, I'd been trying to control it all and, and the Lord 
ultimately said, Bill, you're not in control. And because I, I was like, said, Lord, if, if you want me to be a priest, you're going to have to make it happen because I tried and failed. And, and, and it was as if he was saying, thank you for finally inviting me into this process. And once I was able to let go of it and trust him, then all of the obstacles and everything started getting worked through. And, and uh, he did a far better job of maneuvering all of those around those things that 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 I ever could have. And so that was a real lesson for me in that early process. But after going to Nishota House, uh, graduating from there in 1991, I was ordained as the deacon June 22nd, 1991 on the Feast of St. Alban. And I uh, was assigned to serve at the Cathedral of All Saints as the dean's vicar, only four months later to become the deanless vicar when he left to, to take a different position and uh, served there for almost a year. And shortly after I was ordained to the priesthood, that's when I was called to serve as a rector of St. Mary's Church in Lake Luzerne. I was there for 14 years, and that's where I was when I was elected bishop. Uh, bishop uh, Dan Herzog was the bishop at that time, and, and he had uh, let the diocese know that he was planning to uh, call for the election of a bishop coadjutor and had a couple of folks ask if I was going to put my name in and I said no I have absolutely no intention or no interest whatsoever in that and uh, there was this one particular friend who, who said Bill I, I really think that you would make a good bishop and I would like to nominate you and, and I said Alan thank you but I'm not interested and uh, we just sort of dropped it. And then a while later, he came back and, and said, you know, I, I've really been praying about this, and, and I, I would like to put your name forward. And I said, Alan, thank you. I'm honored that you would that you would consider me for that position, but that is not something I have any interest or aspirations whatsoever in, so no. And, uh, and then a while later, he came back a third time, and as I was about to say what part of no do you not understand that's when i sense the lord saying you know bill i i know that this is not what you want but have you considered what i might want and that was like oh oh no lord please and and uh and i started i i knew i know myself only too well i know all my many failings and shortcomings and inadequacies and i knew who some of the other clergy were that were being considered uh, that were going to be nominated. And, and as I started comparing myself to them, I'm thinking there's no way I could compare to to these other folks and, and the various giftings and talents and things that they had. And and I started sharing all that with the Lord and and is as if he was saying, I, I think I've heard all that before. And he started bringing to mind various men and, and women throughout the ages who he has called to various ministries who in and of themselves, of their own power, were not prepared or adequate for that which they were being called to. And yet when, when they acted in obedience and allowed the Lord to empower them for that ministry, then that made all the difference. And it was about the same time as I was struggling with how to respond to this third request from this friend of mine, Bishop uh, Dan invited me to or asked if I would officiate or celebrate communion at a 
a meeting that he had planned for the clergy, for the priests or, or rectors and deacons of the diocese. He had planned this joint meeting uh, to help us be able to work closer together in, in our parishes. And uh, anyway, he had planned to be at the meeting and Bishop Dave Bennett was planning to be at the meeting and I was just gonna be there as a priest with my deacon and something came up and Bishop Dan wasn't able to come and Bishop uh, Dave was not able to come. And, and so Bishop Dan called and said, Bill, would, would you please, uh, Archbishop or the Archdeacon will lead the meeting, but if at the time of communion, if you would celebrate, I said, I'd be honored to. And and it was during the celebration of Holy Communion as I was standing at the altar, looking out over this room filled with, with priests and, and, and deacons that I just had this tingling sensation that went right down my spine. And in that moment, it's like the Lord is saying, this is your new congregation. And I knew exactly what that meant. And I just thought everything that went through me was, please, Lord, no. Hmm. But but I knew what what I thought that that meant. And and so after that, then I, I uh, agreed to allow my name to go forward after getting the blessing of my my wife and my kids and uh and and that turned out to be such a blessing because when i actually was elected bishop then i knew it wasn't a fluke that that uh, god truly had called me to be a bishop at at that time in the church so that's a long answer to your question no it's great thank you it's interesting when you read uh, church history a lot of the guys who end up being bishops uh they don't want to do it at first <laughs> they kind of and then there's like this forcing of them <laughs> to be it uh what was it about being a bishop that you were not interested in i i, I have often jokingly and not so jokingly said anybody that wants it deserves everything they get because it is a very uh, demanding ministry i had seen who bishop dan who was a very dear and close friend I saw the tremendous toll it took on him physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and and per, and and it, I I didn't want that for myself. I didn't want that for my family. And also, I just again one of the candidates that was being considered was the uh, canon theologian of the diocese, and I knew that I did not compare at all to the the knowledge that he had and and one of the the people who was being considered was the dean of the cathedral and a brilliant liturgist and I knew that I I didn't have those special giftings and and one of the others was a wonderful preacher and I all I can preach I'm I'm not the greatest of preachers and and so as, as I was thinking about all of those it's like how can I possibly compare and and so it's just it's a combination of things of of failing to see the possibilities of what God could do if I allowed him to, to have control of my life and, and, uh, and also just being willing to, to get outside of the, the fear of, of the demands and expectations. Well, we have a number of listeners who aren't Anglican. And so for them hearing the words, you know, Bishop election, I mean that that might conjure up all kinds of ideas. Like, uh, did you did you have a campaign slogan? Did you have signs? Uh, vote for <laughs> vote for Father Love. Uh, what is it? What is it? What does it mean to be in a bishop election? Well, uh, first of all, there's different types of bishops. There's Bishop Bishop uh, Dan Herzog. He was the diocesan bishop, 
he was calling for the election of, of a bishop coadjutor, meaning that whoever was elected to that position eventually would take over as the diocesan once he retired. He had three years from the time that he uh, made, from the time of the election until he had to step down. And, and so the other type of bishop is a bishop suffragan. And uh, so I was being, I was being elected as a, as a, uh, as a bishop coadjutor. So, but I wasn't campaigning. Again, this wasn't something that I wanted. They, we had quite an extensive process in the diocese at that time. They had, I think, 17 very, uh, very engaging questions that all of the candidates were asked. And, and, uh, and so I answered those to the best of my ability. And I remember hitting the send button five minutes before the thing was due and, and just praying that after all that time and effort of, of soul searching and, and trying to answer the questions that, that it would go through. And fortunately it did. So I, it wasn't a question of cert, of a campaigning. We did have a, you know, sometimes in dioceses they have the, the famous dog and pony show where the candidates are, are being escorted around the diocese and have to, uh, have to be interviewed. And, and, Albany at, at that particular time, we decided we had a, a large diocesan camp and conference center at Christ the King Center. And uh, so we decided to bring all of the, the clergy and deputation from around the diocese to Christ the King. And there were 11 candidates that were actually nominated at the time that I was, eight of us from within the diocese and three from outside. And so we had essentially 45 minute period uh, to, to go. We had set, everybody was set up separately and, and, and we would go and, and just whatever questions they asked, uh, but they would have had our answer to the questions that they had asked uh, previously. They would have had access to all of that and any other autobiographical information and things of that nature. So, so it was not a, a I, I didn't have signs. I wasn't saying vote for no bumper stickers, Bill Love, or anything. <laughs> no, <laughs> we joke about about that, but there are some individuals. In fact, we had one or two of those that were in the election at the, at the time that I was elected that had been considered in several other dioceses, and and so there are there are those individuals that they they want to be a bishop and they will just go from diocese to diocese to diocese and until they finally either get tired or they get elected hmm. and uh tragically some of those have been elected and uh so what's the uh state of the episcopal church during this time uh, a lot of our listeners are you know i mean know about um the episcopal church now uh what what were things like whenever you were being up when you were up for election well this was 2006 the big event with gene robinson had occurred three years earlier uh in 2003 and and so that was very much front and center of uh the things that were being considered and it looked as though the the episcopal church as an institution and as a church was was moving further and further to the left and the Diocese of Albany at that time, under the leadership of, of Bishop Herzog, uh, was 
predominantly theologically conservative and orthodox. And, and uh, so there was, people were trying to figure out, would I continue in along those lines or, or would I continue more along the lines of, of the direction that the rest of the Episcopal Church was going? And, and uh, so th those were questions to be considered. And the other thing that was happening at this time was that there were some of the some of the other conservative dioceses and bishops were talking about leaving, and there was a real concern uh, by the or by the House of Bishops that if if they if I received their consent, uh, would I lead the diocese of Albany out of the church? And in fact, in order to be not only do you have to be elected by your diocese. Uh, by by the clergy and depu lay deputation of the diocese, but once you're elected, then you also have to receive the consents of a majority of the House of Bishops and the majority of the standing committees throughout the rest of the Episcopal Church. And and when my election occurred, it was within the time frame of the 2006 General Convention, and and so it was at that convention that they actually voted to consent uh, to me. And and in the middle of the election. Uh, when the bishops had gathered and were electing, then it it uh, became clear that some there were some bishops that were quite concerned as to whether or not I was going to lead the diocese out, and and we ended up stopping the election right in the midst before they finally cast their ballots, and and I had to address that question, and after I assured them that that I had no intention of leaving or leading the Diocese of Albany out of the Episcopal Church. They had to understand that I was in a very different place than many of them were, and I was going to continue to stand firm in my understanding of, of Holy Scripture regarding the various issues of marriage and same-sex attractions and all of those things. And 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 uh, so ultimately, I was elected. I think I got 97% of the bishops and then whatever percentage of the, of the uh, House of Deputies. So, but those were some of the issues that were very much in the forefront at that particular time. At that time, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe at that time, bishops still had essential sovereignty in their diocese. Like, like uh, then it, you could say, well, there won't, won't be any, um, no, no, no priest in my diocese can perform a, a civil union or a, I'm sorry, the same-sex union blessing no one can uh yeah I, I i will not allow a person who's ordained another diocese who's with a partner coming to my diocese you still had that kind of authority at that time i believe is that correct yes that is correct that didn't change uh it started changing in 2015 at the general convention down in austin that was the same year that the uh U.S. Supreme Court voted to author or to change the state's understanding of marriage and and allowing for same-sex marriages. Uh, it was that occurred, and then just within a day or two of that, at general convention, then they then they approved the blessing of same-sex marriages. And but it was with the understanding that it had to that the uh, bishop diocesan had to agree to it. And uh, and myself and seven of the other communion partner bishops, the theologically conservative ones left in the, the church at that time, we all said, uh, we understand what General Convention has done, but but 
we have the option of not allowing for it and we're not going to. Uh, and ultimately that's what led to what happened in 2018 with the presentation of B012. So yes, we could say we're not going to allow for that. And, and that was throughout my episcopate, I was very concerned about who was in the ordination process, what their theological views and understandings were regarding the authority of Holy Scripture, regarding marriage and and uh, and all of those key issues. And, and I wanted to make sure that anyone who is going to be ordained under my watch uh, honored the authority of Holy Scripture and and believed and, and upheld the church's traditional teaching of marriage. And it's uh, also very concerned about our diocesan elections and things of that nature to make sure that, that we had strong, theologically conservative, orthodox clergy and laity that were running for the various positions for standing committee, uh, trustees, diocesan council, all of those things that, that would continue to uphold those teachings. And, and uh, it's not to say that somebody else couldn't have been elected or nominated, but but by the grace of God, we were able to maintain that throughout my episcopate. So. so during this time, I mean, as a bishop, you have a relationship with other bishops in the Episcopal Church, what what was your relationship like with them? You know these, you know some of these guys who are um, who are actually leading their diocese in a in a much different direction than you are. What were conversations like with with those bishops? The House of Bishops meetings was a very lonely place that we met twice a year, and uh, and at that time, there's only a handful of theologically conservative bishops that were left in the Episcopal Church. Many of them had already left. Either they retired or they, they left, and some tried to take their diocese, and, and we know all the, the chaos that that created. But but uh, myself and, and and the other, the seven other uh, communion partner bishops was pretty much it. And so when we were at Dias, at General, I mean, at House of Bishops meetings, we oftentimes would, would try to do things together, but pretty much we were separated in terms of different table groups, and and uh, and it was a very lonely place. So one thing that we consist, consistently heard by the vast majority of the other bishops was, we're so glad that you're here. Essentially, they wanted their token conservatives as long as we kept our mouth shut, sat in the corner, and didn't rock the boat. As soon as we tried to to speak out against various things, and that's when the daggers came out, and and uh, and all sorts of attacks would take place. But uh, I, I tried as best I could during my tenure as a bishop within the Episcopal Church to stand firm uh, for and and and. Uh, regards to the authority of Holy Scripture, stand firm in regards to the teaching, the church's teaching on on marriage and, and all of those various issues. And you have to try to do so in, in a, a way that hopefully other people could hear and at least be open to what I was saying rather than, I think some of my predecessors, uh, when, when the conversations came out, both sides started lobbing grenades at each other and it became quite messy, and and it was not very productive. I was hoping and praying that God would enable me to 
be able to speak and present the various issues in a way that that even those that were in a very different position would at least be challenged to listen and and possibly hear something that they might not have heard had I just come out uh, with the bazookas and guns blazing. Hmm. So it wasn't until you would speak up that's whenever the daggers were you know were being thrown. Um, they that does end up happening. What can you? Um, walk us through what happened eventually how did how did your time at the episcopal church end like what why did you end up moving to the acna okay well again as i mentioned a moment ago it was in 2015 at the general convention in austin texas that's when same-sex blessings were finally approved by the general convention um, same-sex blessings and marriages uh they were still, they still had various trial liturgies and things, but they had authorized some at that time. And, but it was, but we still at that, at that particular time, the way it was worded was said bishops, in order for that to take place in their diocese, they had to agree to it. And the communion partner bishops chose not to. And that set the, set the stage for what happened in 2018 at uh, General Convention. When coming into that convention, you, you had essentially the vast majority of, of the people attending convention were, were liberals. They were all supportive of same-sex marriages, and there was only a handful of us that were trying to stand up against that. But but the writing was on the wall. Where there was a division was you had those that wanted to force the issue, force me and the other conservative uh, bishops to allow for this by virtue of changing the prayer book. And, but then you had, I think, more on the other side that were supportive of same-sex blessings and marriages, but did not believe that that was the time to change the prayer book. And, and so you had this internal argument going on, and, and B012 was presented as a compromise, uh, as a means of forcing me and the other bishops who up until then had refused to allow for same-sex marriages to occur in their diocese, although the, the national church had agreed to it, to force us to allow for that to take place. And, and they tried to give us a, an olive branch type thing by saying that, that it's okay, Bishop Love, if, if you don't agree with same-sex marriages, we're not going to try to force you to change your opinion. All we ask is that you uh, invite another bishop to come in and 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 provide pastoral care for those clergy and those couples that that want that. That way, you can essentially keep your hands clean, and and uh, so it was presented as this compromise, and ultimately it passed. And I remember in the in the House of Bishops debate that was going on regarding this and. And when it when it passed, I I told them right then that I understood they were passing it, but but I was not going to abide by it, and they would have to do to me whatever they chose to do, and then just left it at that. And I think it pretty much fell on deaf ears. But it was not to go into effect until the first Sunday of Advent in in uh, two thousand. I'm sorry, twenty eighteen, and. Uh, so in November, just a couple of weeks prior to the first Sunday of Advent, that's when I issued my famous uh, pastoral letter and pastoral directive to the clergy and people of the diocese. Uh, 
again, stating that I understand the actions that General Convention took uh, in 20 and the prior summer. However, in the Diocese of Albany, uh, we were not going to abide by that, that, that uh, we were going to uphold the diocesan marriage canon and and uphold the authority of holy scripture and in, in our lives and and uh, we would not i would not as the bishop allow or authorize same-sex blessings or marriages to occur within the diocese a few years earlier when it looked like new york state was going to be changing the marriage laws then i'd asked the canon theologian or the yeah, the canon theologian of the of the uh, or the, I'm sorry, the chair of the Constitution and Canons Committee to to write a canon, a marriage canon, that would essentially do three things. First of all, uh, make clear what the traditional teaching of marriage was. Secondly, it would prohibit any clergy from the diocese of Albany, either theologically, I mean, either canonically resident or licensed, to perform or participate in any way in same-sex marriages. And third, that no church property, parish property, or any other property uh, owned by, by the diocese or parishes could be, could be used for same-sex marriages to take place. In other words, they couldn't bring some other priest in from another diocese. And, and uh, so I said that we would continue to uphold that, that uh, canon. And sent that out. I was sending it to the people of the diocese, the clergy, and people of the diocese, and and it went viral. It it uh, literally it hit the internet and and went throughout the world uh, in ways that I could never have imagined. And and uh, so that shortly after I issued that pastoral letter and pastoral directive, uh, then I was contacted by the presiding bishop's office saying that he, he had received complaints from individuals from within the diocese as well as outside of the diocese regarding my pastoral letter and directive and uh, they wanted me to rescind that and I said I'm not going to do that and then shortly after that then I received notification from the presiding bishop's office that I was being partially inhibited uh, only to the degree that I could not take any type of disciplinary action against any of the clergy or people of any of the clergy in the diocese who decided they wanted to take advantage of B012. And the rest of my ministry was not impacted at all. It was just regarding that particular issue. And uh, I acknowledged to the presiding bishop that I'd received the inhibition, that I would honor the inhibition, however I was going to appeal it. And uh, that ultimately led to the trial. And and uh, this the whole thing took about two years from start to finish before I finally, the trial took place and, and uh, I was found guilty. Uh, and what I was found guilty of was violating my ordination vows because I refused to abide by a general convention resolution, which had it been any other topic would not have been an issue because general convention resolutions are passed left and right and, and bishops of all different stripes ignore them. 
but because it was this issue, uh, then they were going to use that as a charge against me. And essentially, my argument was that that uh, if I abide by B012, then in fact, I will be guilty of violating my ordination vows. But at the moment, I'm the only bishop in the Episcopal Church that has not, because I've refused to abide by it. And uh, that was not well received. But charges were brought. The trial finally took place. This was in the middle of COVID. And, and ultimately, I was found guilty. And, uh, and at this so point, you, you were standing... You were standing alone, is that correct? Because the other communion partner bishops, while they 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 voice support for you um, verbally, I, th did any of the other ones take the same stands? Um, and, and how were the, how was their communication with you during this time? Uh, it it became more awkward that privately some of them were reaching out and and uh, saying uh, we're holding you up in prayer. A couple. A couple of them were trying to get me to consider figuring out some way of of agreeing to go along with this. But my whole argument to the communion partner bishops was that you and I have a different understanding of this. My understanding of the polity is of, of the Episcopal Church is that no other bishop can come into another diocese and function in any way without the express permission an authorization of the diocesan bishop or the ecclesiastical authority of the diocese if there is no bishop. And, and uh, while they can say that you don't have to go along with, you don't have to believe in same-sex marriages, you just have to invite someone else in to provide pastoral care, I'm saying that, that, in, that in essence, we are giving our blessing to it if we do that. And I, I I will not do that. And that's where the communion partner bishops and I went in separate directions. And and uh, and I I can only speak to my decision. I can't speak to what they what may have motivated them to make the changes or the decisions that they did. If if since Saint Paul says that uh, this particular sin, among others, uh, if a person's unrepentant of it, it can that person won't be able to enter in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it seems like how could a bishop who's charged with you know guarding the flock do anything but what you did? I mean, you I don't see how how if you really believe what Paul says about this, how you could make any other choice. So um I'm thankful you did because I think that's a you you served you serve and served as a, a great example of someone willing to put lay down his own uh future uh his own job uh you didn't know what was going to happen to you um for the sake of the sheep that you were you're guiding that was really a great example well thank, thank you my, my whole prayer throughout that whole process was not that it would go one direction or the other my prayer was that God would not allow me to do anything stupid to get in the way of what he was trying to accomplish through that process. And and uh, and, and one of the humbling aspects of, of that whole time was once the, the letter got out there and went through cyberspace and, and I started hearing from people from all over the world, literally from every continent with the exception of Antarctica. 
I receive hundreds and hundreds of letters, emails, uh, text messages, phone calls from people, some of whom were quite unhappy with me and were quite uh, quite colorful in how they expressed their displeasure. But the vast majority of them who took the time to, to write uh, or reach out to me, they were very supportive and, and they said, thank you uh, for taking the stand that you have to uphold the authority of Holy Scripture, to uphold the, the sacraments of the church. And, and, uh, and we're so thankful that a bishop in the church is finally willing to take that stand. And so that, that was a real encouragement uh, that I, that was such a blessing to me. And, and not just, I know that there were people, a lot of people who never reached out, but were holding me and my family up in prayers. And, and, and I'm so thankful and appreciative for them, for their, for their love and support and encouragement and prayers. And, and that means more than I could ever possibly express. What's so tragic in all of this and what you can easily see in just everything that you're saying is the foundational problem of them not believing anymore in the authority of God's word. Like that's, that's just crazy to me that in order to try and get you to obey, they want to change the prayer book and that's something they can change. Um, they can't change the scriptures. And, and so instead you just, you, you make another book, the authority, the prayer book is an authority, uh, but let's just change it <laughs> and what it says. And then too, how they uh, said you're guilty of contradicting your, your, uh, your vows because you didn't follow general convention versus following scripture. Um, so that's very tragic. I, yeah, I, I can't imagine, you know, having those types of conversations with people, there's just such a disconnect, <laughs> Like you're on such different islands of thought. How did you, I mean, this was, I mean, even before, well, no, because yeah, because the the um, election of Dean Robinson was, had already been, had already happened. Um, what was it that really um, encouraged you and pushed you to to stay in the Episcopal Church during this time, especially whenever you you're seeing a lot of people leave it, um, what what was it that in, inspired you to do that? What was your thought process there? Well, I have to be honest. There, there were several years building up to to the twenty eighteen General Convention. There were times that I was becoming so frustrated with the Episcopal Church, with the direction that it was taking, and and uh, not being able to do anything about it that, that I seriously was considering uh, leaving myself, leaving the Episcopal Church. I knew that after having watched the trauma and tragedy of some of the diocese that tried to leave as a whole, I knew that there, I could not do that to the Diocese of Albany, that the New York state laws were such that, that it would just be a, a massive legal nightmare and financial nightmare that there was no way we could win so i considered myself leaving but every time i i presented that to the lord in, in prayer then i kept getting the sense that he was saying stay right where you are keep keep preaching the message that i've given you to preach regardless of, of what they do to you and and uh no way am i going to compare myself to 
to Jeremiah or some of the great prophets of old, but I could really start to relate to some of the very difficult position that many of them found themselves in when God was calling them to preach a message that society did not want to hear, and yet it desperately needed to hear, and and just the the attacks and things that they went under, and and uh, and so I I was I was very much uh, sensing a real realization of of that same that same type of experience and uh but it it wasn't until after i was found guilty uh that i finally sensed the lord saying okay bill now you can leave i i think we had to go through that process and 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 i i could have resigned in fact there was a couple of the bishops were saying just resign why go through this uh and I said i i can't we we have to we have to take this to its to its conclusion and in so doing i think it revealed to the wider church and the wider world the depth to which the episcopal church had fallen and also the depth that they were willing to go to to get rid of anyone that would get in the way of their agenda and and the be, as I mentioned earlier, B012 is presented as a compromise resolution to force the allowance of same-sex marriages without changing the prayer book. Well, in the trial, the trial lawyer representing the Episcopal Church entered into revisionistic history, and, and his whole argument was based on the argument that B012, in fact, changed the prayer book, and, and uh, which was a farce that that was a blatant lie and he knew it everybody else knew it and and yet the the ecclesiastical trial court they accepted that and and uh it was interesting that after i was found guilty after i had submitted my resignation to the to the presiding bishop michael curry and that had been approved by the by the uh, house of bishops after all of that had happened, then two of the three bishops who had authored B012 came out and said that was not a change to the prayer book. They knew it. One of the ironic things was uh, Bishop Nicholas Nisley, the Bishop of Rhode Island, he was one of the three bishops that had authored uh, B012. He was the he was the chair of the ecclesiastical trial court that found me guilty. So talk about a conflict of interest. And uh, he, he knew it was not what was being presented, but the only way to find me guilty was to say that it was. But for the sake of argument, even if it was, that would have just been the first uh, step in changing the prayer book. For the prayer book to to take a for change to the prayer book to take effect, it has to have two back-to-back -back general conventions approve it. That would have been just the first one. It would have required a second one, which would not which had not happened. So, but that revealed the depth to which uh, the church was willing to go to to try to silence me or anyone else that would speak out. For people in the Episcopal Church. For uh, it, for you as a bishop, 
Yeah, I can. I understand that it's it's you're in a different you're in a different place. You're in a you're in a place of um, of uh, authority, the ability to really preach the gospel and try and keep your churches faithful to the gospel. Um, but for let's say for a parishioner um, who's in the Episcopal Church and they uh, uh, they have a an, an unfaithful bishop and or in an unfaithful uh, priest what what is your um encouragement to them what should somebody do should someone just up and leave should someone try to stay in and try and reform it or wh- what should they do and especially if there's no other like anglican alternative right let's say they don't have another alternative of of like a a, a church that they grew up with and they they want to stay in that that tradition what what should somebody in that position do or what would be your pastoral advice to someone in that position i think the most important thing is to seriously pray about how they can best be faithful and obedient to the lord whether they're a layperson whether they're a deacon or priest or a bishop uh, how how they can best be faithful and obedient to to the Lord's calling on their life in whatever capacity that that might be, and and uh, while I think the Episcopal Church as an institution has lost its sense of direction, it's taken its eyes off of Christ, it's taken its eyes off of the Holy Scripture, and it has it has adopted, embraced the the secular agenda of society in which we live right now, while it 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 is very much drifted away from from our Lord and and uh, His Word and His teaching, I believe that there are still individuals within the Episcopal Church, clergy and laity, who are faithful uh, to God and and His Word and and uh and are trying to do the right thing and find themselves in in very difficult uh positions as i told the clergy of the diocese of albany when i was leaving i said you and i are in a bit of a different place right now that when b012 uh that that was the line in the sand for me that i could not I could not go beyond it and remain faithful and obedient because to abide by it, I would have violated my ordination vows. I would have uh, violated God's holy word, and I could not do that. I said, for the clergy, you still have the option of saying that we we will not uh, officiate at a same-sex marriage, nor will we allow for a same-sex marriage to occur within our parishes so at the moment they still have that possibility and and uh and some people are are choosing to exercise that but i've also said the day will come when those canons will be changed and you will be told you no longer have the choice you have to allow for this you have to do it yourself and when that time comes then then you have to choose what what is truly of utmost importance uh being faithful and obedient to god and his word or caving in and 
going along with with uh, an institution that has lost its way and and the same thing for for laity uh, that that I think it's important for for people, whether clergy or laity, to, to really get a sense of of what's the true underlying motivation behind their decision either to stay or to leave. Uh, I, I know that there are clergy that that love their people dearly and and they don't want to abandon them and they want to 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 provide faithful pastoral care to them. And I can appreciate that. I know that there are other clergy that that are in a very difficult position because they live in in rectories owned by the church. They're being paid by the church. Their insurance is being paid by the church. Their pension plan is within the church, and 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 so they have some real serious decisions to make uh, whether they step out in faith and trust that somehow God will provide for those needs that are currently being met by by the institutional church. Uh, or whether they will stick it out for however long that they need to 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 make retire to reach retirement, and and the same thing for for laity. And uh, while they don't have those, they have to decide: are they more in love with the Lord of the church, or are they in love with the building? And and tragically, there's so many people that are so at attached to the building. Perhaps it's they have generations of family who have worshipped there and they can't bear the thought of going anywhere else or or they just love the architecture and the beauty and all of those things and and are and they are being guided and led to to stay because they can't bear the thought of worshiping outside of that particular building. So those are all real questions, motivations and and things to ask the Lord to to really give them a clear sense of discernment and if it's possible for them to stay and remain faithful then god bless them but if they reach that point where they cannot stay and be faithful may god give them the grace to make the difficult decision and step out in faith and and i i am a living witness that that the lord honors honors that and he provides for us in ways that we could never have envisioned. Uh, but but we have to be faithful. So, again, a long answer to your question. But I, I, I don't think any of us are in a position to say, you must do this or you must do that. I, I, and and uh, people have different, different motivations and understandings. But for me and for my household, to be faithful, we had to leave. Yeah, thank, again, thank you for uh, coming on and sharing your story with us, and and, and thank you again for the great, um, the great model and example of being a good bishop that you provide, and you're our bishop too. You're on our diocese, so it's really it's a great joy to serve under you. Well, so thank you, Father Matt. Thank you for <laughs> Father Jonathan. It's it's an honor to serve with both of you, and I'm so thankful to. Archbishop Foley and the College of Bishops within ACNA to have received me into this part of the body of Christ and for Bishop Julian inviting me to, to uh, serve alongside him as his assistant and, and uh, to be able to minister with you guys and the other wonderful clergy and laity throughout the diocese. It's, I'm so thankful and honored uh, that the Lord has opened this, this new door, this new chapter and in my life and, and that of my family.
well to our diocese and the ACNA and the church at large are a huge blessing. So thank you. And um, also, yeah, thank you for your personal ministry. I know my wife and I have been comforted by it. So thank you. Um, and yeah, thank you also for uh, being on, on the, on the podcast and Matt's cat for being on the podcast. too. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> all right. Well, with that, uh, we will be, we'll be done for this week. Thank you for uh, listening and uh, we will see you next week.